Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Columbus, Georgia. With just over 200,000 residents, Columbus is the second largest city in Georgia after Atlanta, and it is located on the western border of the Chattahoochee River. Columbus was an important shipping port, and in 1918, it became home to Fort Benning, which supports more than 120,000 active-duty military and reserve soldiers, veterans, and civilian employees. The city is also home to a riverwalk, museums, and tourism sites, and it has the longest urban whitewater rafting course in the world and a zip line across the Chattahoochee River. Columbus residents have always believed their town was a great place to raise a family. But in 1985, that belief was shattered. In August 1985, Michael and Ann Curry were the parents of two little kids, Erica, who was four, and Ryan, who was two. And Ann was eight months pregnant with a little boy who they planned to name Tyler. Michael Curry, who was 27 years old, worked as a supervisor of maintenance in the physical plant office of the Bradley Center, a private nonprofit psychiatric hospital in Columbus. A physical plant houses all of the equipment and other systems that are required to operate or maintain a facility like sanitation, fire safety, and housekeeping. Anne, who was 24 years old, was on maternity leave from her job working nights as a customer service representative with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia, a health insurance company. Although the family had only lived in their home for a little over a year, Anne's night job prevented her from getting to know the neighbors well. The neighbors who were interviewed said that while they kept to themselves, the Currys seemed like they were nice people. On the morning of August 29, 1985, which was just before the long Labor Day weekend, Anne and her two children had gone shopping in the morning at a Sears store before visiting her parents who lived about five miles away. According to an article by David Beasley of the Atlanta Constitution, about five hours after Anne got home, a 911 call was received by the Columbus Police Department from the neighbor who lived across the street from the Currys. Michael Curry had banged on the door and collapsed into the arms of 19-year-old Eddie Grable when Eddie opened the door. Eddie lived with his parents and yelled to his mother, who was fixing dinner, to call an ambulance. Police officer Bobby McClendon was the first officer to arrive on the scene, and Michael Curry was hysterical, hyperventilating, and screaming. Officer McClendon asked Michael what was wrong, a question he had to repeat several times before Michael answered. Just as the second police officer, Wiley Spear, arrived, Michael Curry told them that he had come home from work and found his family dead. Officers McClendon and Spear went across the street to the Curry home. 
where they found the front door open. Inside, they found the body of Michael's pregnant wife, Anne, and remember she was eight months pregnant, and their two children, Erica and Ryan. The bodies of Anne and her son Ryan were found in the den, and four-year-old Erica was found on the kitchen floor. Authorities said they had been killed with a bush axe, which was found in the den after the bodies had been discovered. Bush axes are typically used to clear thick brush without having to use chainsaws, and they have handles that are about three to four feet long and a curved blade about 12 to 16 inches. Kath, it looks like a scythe, but not as big. Like the handle's not as long or Exa- the, the blade exactly. isn't as long or both? The handle. Like okay. the handle's not as long. It's about three or four feet long. Anyway, according to police, the bush axe had belonged to the Currys and was usually stored in their utility room. Officials estimated at the time the victims had been dead for several hours. Michael Curry was taken away by police in handcuffs, but police were quick to clarify that the handcuffs were only because he was distraught and the police did not want him hurting himself or others. According to police, there were no apparent signs that anything had been taken from the house and the house was not in a state of disarray. It appeared that no one had rifled through the home looking for valuables. A glass pane in the back door to the house had been broken, indicating a possible forced entry. Muskegee County Coroner J. Donald Kilgore said that Ann Curry died from cuts to the throat and head. The children died as a result of skull fractures from blows from the bush axe, and there was no evidence of sexual assault. According to Columbus Assistant Police Chief Sam Woodall, they didn't immediately have any suspects or any evidence that might indicate what the motive was. According to the article, Columbus police described the murders of the Curry family as among the city's most horrible, and considering many of the officers had investigated the strangulation deaths of seven elderly women in Columbus in the late 70s, that was really saying something about the murder scene. Assistant Chief Woodall said at the time that what really made it so bad was that the mother was expecting a child. Remember, she was eight months pregnant, and that other than the husband, the entire family was gone. Police still didn't have any motive or suspect two weeks after the murders. Michael Curry had been questioned by police and released. The day after the murders, on the advice of his attorney, Michael declined a police request to undergo a polygraph examination. Michael's lawyer, Frank Martin, said that not only was Michael in no condition physically or mentally to take a lie detector test, but it would be of little benefit since the results are not admissible in court. Assistant Police Chief Woodall said that police weren't calling Michael Curry a suspect because they didn't have any evidence linking him to the crime. Almost two months after the murder, Columbus Mayor Bill Figner and Columbus Police Chief Jim Weatherington announced that Governor Joe Frank Harris had established a reward for information on the deaths of Anne, Erica, and Ryan Curry. The week after the announcement, the reward fund had reached more than $27,000. Contributions included $5,000 that had been announced by Governor Harris, $2,500 from Anne Curry's parents, $5,000 from Michael Curry's family, and $14,100 donated by eight local businesses and two individuals. Writing for the Atlanta Constitution, Roger Ann Jones reported that on March 19, 1986, so seven months after the murders, 
Michael Curry spoke for the first time since his wife and children had been killed. During a coroner's inquest, which is an investigation typically conducted to determine a cause of death, what I'd read about this, because I wasn't familiar with a coroner's inquest, is that they are used if they have an unknown or sudden death. The coroner uses this as a way of helping him determine how the people who had been killed actually died. Which is interesting because, again, remember, in many states, the coroner's office is just sort of like a function of appointment or even election. You don't have to be a doctor. They use this as a tool to determine cause of death, and it's completely statutory, meaning each state that does these, because not all states have coroner's inquests, each state that does these has their own rules. And they also have subpoena power, so they can compel people to testify with a penalty if they don't. Right. That's like a grand jury. A, right. pen- a penalty being... Uh, well, it varies by state. Well, the court holds you in contempt. There might be a fine attached, something like that. Michael Curry told the coroner and the five-person inquest jury that he'd been threatened by the husband of a woman he was having an affair with, a co-worker named Pamela Burt. Michael said that Fred Burt had told him that he could hurt him without touching him. Bert said he made no such threat and denied any involvement in the killings. Bert said he told Curry that if he wanted to hurt him, he could have already done it. Fred Bert said that he had followed his wife, Pamela Bert, and Michael Curry to a motel one night where Bert said that there was a problem, but there was no violence. Was this a no-tell motel? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it should have been. Hourly raids, probably. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Both Michael Curry and Pamela Burt testified at the inquest that their affair lasted about three weeks. Curry said that his wife, Anne, had received several obscene phone calls the week before her death, but could not identify the caller. According to testimony at the coroner's inquest, Michael Curry did not see or talk to his wife the day she and their children were killed. He testified that he left the hospital where he worked at about 9.40 a.m., and the purpose of which was to check on the price of fans at three stores. He returned around 1.10 p.m. So it took him three and a half hours to check out the prices of fans at three stores? Apparently, he is a very slow shopper. And driver. Exactly. If it were me, I would be like doing a side detour on jewelry shopping. (laughs) (laughs) So according to Mrs. Johnson, Anne's mom, Anne and the kids left her home at about 1230. And this is how many miles away? It's about five. They said it was a seven minute drive. Seven minute drive. Okay. And then Michael Curry testifies to returning to work at 110. And one of his co-workers testified that the two of them walked the hospital grounds at 130 p.m. So we have a tight time frame. The coroner's jury announced that it was unable to decide who was responsible for the murders. And remember, the point of the inquest was to determine the cause of death. One month after the coroner's inquest, Columbus police reached out to the FBI for assistance in solving the murders of Anne, Erica, and Ryan. Investigators from the FBI Academy's National Center for Analysis of Violent Crime would be attempting to provide a profile of the person who committed the crime. The Columbus Police Department hoped that the profile would give them additional information that may lead them to a suspect in the case. By November of 1986, so more than a year after the murders, Ann's parents filed a lawsuit to prevent Michael Curry from collecting more than $32,000 in life insurance policies, 
which in 2022 dollars would be almost 85000 By this point, Michael had moved to Florida. Now, Kev, I did not see, first of all, with respect to the FBI's like VICAP analysis, I did not see anything published on the profile. Neither did I. And I was interested because I didn't see anything either, but it would have been interesting to see what role it would have played. Right. But it would have been nice after all these years to have known what did they come up with, even if it didn't work. And as far as the lawsuit goes, you know, it doesn't say that it was a wrongful death lawsuit. There are certain provisions in insurance policies, like you obviously can't collect on somebody you murdered, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't, there's no details of exactly what kind of lawsuit they filed. Now, for wrongful death, well, actually, I was going to say, could it be a suspect in a murder? But he wasn't even a suspect. So what could they have used to have said that he doesn't deserve the money? Well, if, I mean, if it was a wrongful death lawsuit, I mean, certain insurance companies, you know, they're going to do their own investigations and they're going to come up with a finding. So I don't know what happened. So I feel like this was a big piece of the puzzle that I was disappointed <laughs> that I didn't know. Like, what the heck, you know? Fast forward 23 years to May 19th, 2009. An article by Tim Chitwood in the Ledger Inquirer, which interestingly, Kathy, Tim Chitwood was also one of the original reporters for the Ledger Inquirer to cover the deaths back in 1985. So he was a local reporter then probably. And had been there at least 23 years. Oh, I love that. Tim Chitwood wrote that a Muskogee County grand jury had issued a sealed indictment charging Michael Curry with murder aggravated assault, and feticide, which is the legal term for fetal homicide, in the deaths of his wife, two children, and unborn child. Curry was arrested the next day in Dalton, Georgia, which is about 200 miles south of Columbus, at the Dalton Public Schools Maintenance and Operations Office, where he'd worked since October of 1999, and then turned over to the Columbus police. Chattahoochee Judicial Circuit District Attorney Julia Slater. Wow, that's a mouthful. A mouthful. I would hate <laughs> don't to don't have you that like card. saying Chattahoochee, though? I really do. Chattahoochee. <laughs> we should move there just so people can ask us. They'll be like, where do you live? Chattahoochee. <laughs> that's going to be the name of your next dog. Oh, totally. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Chattahoochee. <laughs> I just call it Hoochie. <laughs> I, I bet you would. I bet you would. Well, your nickname from high school has to stop. She is such a liar. <laughs> okay, remember the bad influence? Yeah. I got stories to tell with what else she did. That was fake news. Fake news! <laughs> <laughs> that will be in a different podcast, but let me tell you, I got proof. We'll do a tell-all one day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, it'll probably be pretty boring. <laughs> yeah, that's true, except for the misspent years of our youth. Right. <laughs> so now back to the DA. Exactly. Uh, District Attorney Slater said the indictment was sealed to ensure Curry wouldn't flee or endanger others before he was in custody. Slater said that she couldn't give any details, but that she had seen evidence that was not available in the prior 24 years. At a news conference the day after Curry's arrest, District Attorney Slater said that she would prosecute the case herself. Now, Kath, is that unusual? Do they usually have underlings do it? Well, it depends. I mean, in most large cities, yes. You're not going to have the, you know, the L.A. County D.A. actually doing something himself unless it's highly political. But if, Or for, it's an election year. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, so you have deputy district attorneys who pretty much, you know. Uh, That's their job. Exactly. They okay. typically take the laboring or a lot of uh, D.A.s are just political figures. But I, I honestly don't know 
in the Columbus DA's office, like how unusual it was. Well, and especially back in 2009, it could yeah. have been her and one other person. I strongly suspect that she took a more active role in prosecution because the, the city only had 200,000 residents. So it wasn't like a three million person city. While the Curry murder case had been most recently handled by cold case detectives, police chief Ricky Boren, who had been a sergeant at the time of the murders, said the case was never forgotten and had always been assigned to an investigator. Chief Boren said that more than 20 officers had followed up on the case over the years and never stopped tracking Curry as he moved from Columbus to Florida and around to other parts of the country before moving back to Georgia in 1999. During the news conference, Anne's mother, Bernice Johnson, spoke to reporters and thanked the police for their patience and encouragement. Mrs. Johnson also said that she believed District Attorney Slater would represent their daughter and grandchildren with fairness and dignity. Columbus Mayor Jim Weatherington, who, if you'll recall, had been the Columbus police chief at the time of the killings, thanked the Johnsons for their patience and said they'd literally been through hell over the past 24 years. An article by Chuck Williams with the Ledger Inquirer three months after Michael Curry's arrest said that following the Superior Court arraignment of Curry, District Attorney Slater announced that she did not plan to seek the death penalty. Curry's defense attorney, Public Defender Bob Wadkins said that the DA's decision not to seek the death penalty sent the message that the state's case against Curry was weak. I actually agree with him on that one because all of these years, over two decades, had gone by. So you probably have witnesses whose memories aren't so fresh or whatever. Or who passed away. Yeah. And, and if you're putting this to a jury and expecting them to come back with, you know, asking for the death penalty, they're going to be like, eh, I. I see exactly what he's saying. Well, and not only that, but he does point out in the same article that due to the brutality of the killings, if they're not going to seek the death penalty for those kinds of killings, how can they ever justify having a death penalty for anything else? True. That's very true. Watkins also said that Slater's indictment of Curry was politically motivated, saying that the district attorney needed a boost in her community rankings. At the arraignment, Curry pleaded not guilty to all 11 charges, which included murder, aggravated assault, and feticide. Defense attorney Bob Watkins asked the judge to dismiss five of the charges, saying it appeared they'd been prepared by someone who was not a lawyer. Dang! (laughs) Or as we'd say in the 80s, burn. (laughs) When did they say, boom goes the dynamite? God almighty! The defense attorney Watkins claimed that the statute of limitations on the aggravated assault charges had expired. The defense attorney asked that the feticide charges be dismissed as well. And there were two charges with respect to that. But one had expired because of the statute of limitations and one was not in George's criminal code in 1985. So maybe he was right. Maybe he was right about an attorney not drafting this. I was just thinking this. Even I would know. Any true crime fan would know to look for that. Exactly. The defense attorney did not challenge the murder counts, which included three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of felony murder, meaning the victims died during the course of a felony. The defense also asked that the trial be moved out of Muskegee County, citing the inability to get a fair trial due to all of the publicity. In September of 2009, a month after Curry's arraignment, Superior Court Judge John Allen ruled that Curry could be released from the Muskogee County Jail 
if he was able to come up with $300,000, which was $100,000 per victim, as well as a high-tech tracking system so authorities could monitor his movements in real time. Judge Allen ordered that Curry could not obtain a passport and only travel for work, church, or the doctor. When the DA questioned whether Muskogee County Sheriff's Office had the technology needed as far as the tracking device, the judge basically told the defense, hey, you're the one who wants him out of jail. If you can pay 300 grand and find tracking technology, you're going to have to pay for it. Otherwise, you're staying in jail. It really surprises me that in 2009 that the Muskogee County Sheriff's Office wouldn't have this tracking technology. Like wouldn't have had ankle bracelets or something. Or something like that. Or maybe it was because the caveat that he had was track him in real time. Yeah. I I am moderately amused that the judge was like, find it and pay for it yourself or you're staying in jail. (laughs) And and good luck paying the $300,000 bond as well. Exactly. The judge delayed rendering an opinion on whether or not the trial should be moved. And but then he ultimately denied it. Trial started on April 18th, 2011, nearly two years after Michael Curry's arrest and almost 26 years after the deaths of his wife and children. It took prosecutors and defense attorneys two days to select the jury of 10 women and two men. Opening arguments began on April 20th. According to a news report from Lindsay Connell with WTVM-TV, Columbus Police Chief Ricky Boren was the first witness to take the stand. He was a homicide detective at the time of the murders and responded to the 911 call at the Curry's home. Boren told the jury about the statements he said Michael Curry made to detectives the night of the murders when he was interrogated at police headquarters later that night. He said Curry was standoffish, calm, quiet, and nice as he was asked questions from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. And that Curry started falling asleep during the interview and had no response when Boren asked him why someone would want to do this to his family, how long Curry thought his family was dead when he found them, or if he had any marital problems. Boren told the court he thought Curry's actions were unusual at such a critical time. I think it's obnoxious that the police opinion on this guy's behavior was even admitted. The whole sleeping, to me, that is like a complete adrenaline crash. I can't imagine that he was bored by the situation. Right. I just think that it had been a long day. Yeah. He had like, the highs of the high adrenaline of finding his family. Right. And then, and then honestly, by the time they did it, if it was 11 p.m., Six hours had gone by. Yeah. I, I remember ages ago. I mean, this is ages ago. When you were interrogated? <laughs> <laughs> Before my interrogation. No. <laughs> I was chased by a car and it scared the living daylights out of oh, me. Oh, I remember this story. Oh, oh my God. Like You had left work oh, and made it, a wrong turn. It, exactly. I made a wrong turn. I got lost. I Whatever. I was chased by this car and I am up in the mountains of wherever. I mean, I, I'm up in the hills of God knows where. I'm super lost. I'm young. Anyway, these guys get out of the car and they had a crowbar in their hand. And the only reason they did not come over and bust my windows out or whatever they're going to do is because another car came by and scared them off. And I remember driving home and I was so, like, I had no gas in my car. Uh, and that was a total typical Kathy thing in, oh, yeah. in high school uh, and college. Totally. Well, well and k- now. Kind of now, too. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> no, really now, yeah. too. Yeah. So I had no gas in my car and I just remembered I was hysterical crying. So eventually these people pull over to help me and um, they buy me gas. They buy me like oh, $5 worth so nice. of gas. Exactly. But I can't even, I could barely speak. I'm hysterical. But I remember getting home. And I could not 
keep my eyes open. Well, but it, but the threat was over. See, I think that's what it is. Like, yeah. Anyway, so that's what it reminded me of when I read that this guy could not keep his eyes open during the police interrogation. But anyway, that's a side note. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chief Boren said that Curry admitted to drinking occasionally and doing drugs in the past, including heroin, PCP, cocaine, speed, and marijuana. But after going to rehab in 1979, he said he had only smoked marijuana. He told Boren he had flashbacks, including one where he envisioned someone in the car with him while he was driving. According to Boren, Curry tested negative for drugs and alcohol the night of the killings. Okay, let's talk about what's obnoxious. He tested negative... But prior to 1979, remember, this is now 2011, he brings up heroin, PCP, cocaine, speed, and marijuana. That makes you think drug addict. Oh, totally. It it totally was unnecessary. He didn't need to do that. Right. There was no indication whatsoever that any of that was part of his later life. Well, and especially because he tested negative for drugs and alcohol the night of the murders. Mm -hmm. So why would you bring up that he had had this history? Right. That was like the DA, if she had a circumstantial case entirely, or possibly a weak case is going to bring out anything negative about this guy, no matter what. Yeah, I wonder if the defense objected during this line of questioning. There's nothing that tells us if they were, you know, hopping up and down, as we like to say. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? When Curry went to Florida. Oh, stop. I'm not. No, (laughs) he did. Stop it. I should have said it back then. Had to get it in now. Sorry about that. Total non sequitur. He did. Bourne had also asked Curry about scratches on his arms, and he told the police officer that he'd been moving boxes at work or thought he might have gotten into an altercation with officers at the crime scene when they were trying to subdue him. Chief Bourne further testified 
that Curry did not mention that he was having an affair with a female co-worker when he was interrogated, or that the weekend before the murders, Curry and his mistress decided to spend the night at a motel. I'm assuming this was the Notel Motel exactly. that we referenced earlier. <laughs> That's right. Curry had called his wife and told her he went out drinking with his buddies, and they decided to pitch in on a room. If my husband said that to me, I'd be like, <laughs> what? I'll come pick you up. Exactly. You're, in, you're, you're local. Now, remember, the woman that he was having an affair with was his co-worker, Pamela Burt. Her husband showed up at the motel and asked her to come home with him, but she refused and said she was spending the night with Curry. Wow. <laughs> the balls on that woman. Totally. Clank, clank. Exactly. <laughs> That's some stone cold honesty. But wait till you hear this. She told her husband to go home and she'd see him the next day. If I were the husband, I'd be like, oh, no, you won't. Exactly. <laughs> Shockingly, Bourne said the couple separated after that, but they later got back together. Mm-hmm. Chief Bourne further testified that the husband had an alibi for the day of the murders. Remember, when Michael's family was killed, he had said that he had been threatened by Fred Burt and thought maybe he could be a suspect. Right. And that his wife had received anonymous phone calls. Right. Exactly. But Chief Boren said the husband had an alibi for the day of the murders. Curry's former fiance, Lisa Nauman, also took the stand on the fourth day of trial without the jury present. There was no explanation as to why the jury wasn't present. But anyway, they basically put a witness on the stand and they tell the judge, hey, we're going to do an offer of proof on what this witness is going to say, blah, 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 blah. And the judge is like, "Okay, she can testify or she can't. And then they put her back on in front of the jury if it's going to be admissible. Otherwise, she gets to go home. Now, she testified outside the presence of the jury, but apparently the journalists were still present. Anyway, she testified that she got engaged to Michael Curry in 1987, which was two years after the murder of his family. And she said she felt sorry for him as he had threatened to kill himself a number of times. Wow. Yeah. However, her feelings changed the day that she says Michael Curry attacked her in the middle of a calm conversation they were having. Okay, so I'm actually willing to bet that it wasn't as calm as she's trying to make it appear, but it probably wasn't an argument. You're probably right, Kath, but you know, I felt like there were implications of PCP flashbacks. When the chief testified about what Curry had said to him? But nobody, yeah. Nobody looked into it further. Correct. So it could have happened. Right. So she's testifying that she's supposedly having this calm conversation and out of the blue, he threatens to kill her. She said she didn't understand it, but when she looked into his eyes and saw the seriousness of it, she believed he was probably going to kill her. From that day forward, Ms. Nauman said she was afraid of Curry and the relationship ended. Her testimony, however, was ruled inadmissible by the judge and the jury did not get to hear it. Dr. Keith Lehman, Georgia Bureau of Investigation Medical Examiner and Forensic Pathologist, testified that it's possible the Curry family was killed before 1230 in the afternoon. At the time, the rectal thermometer was used to get the victim's temperatures, but Lehman said the method was inadequate considering the house was more than 90 degrees that day. Well, and I I think I read somewhere that 90 was as high as the thermostat went. Exactly. It was the upper 80s when it was outside was upper 80s. So it could have been 100 degrees in there. Right. The people who were at the crime scene believed it was well over 90 degrees, but that's all their thermometer would register. According to court records, testimony during the trial established that the bodies of Ann and Ryan were found in the den of the Curry's home. 
Anne 20, had, 20 month old, right, Ryan? Right, 20, yeah, 20 exactly. He was okay, a 20 month ahead. old. Anne had lacerations and puncture wounds to the head, neck, and upper torso. She was nearly decapitated and she had a deep puncture wound in her left temple. Ryan had several lacerations about his head and bruising on his upper torso. Erica's body was in the kitchen. This Erica's is, four. Correct. Also had several lacerations to her head and face. Ryan and Erica died of skull fractures and Anne died of massive blood loss. It also came out during the trial that the bush axe used in the murders found bloodied in the den had been purchased just a few weeks earlier by Michael Curry. I just hope they died quickly. And if it was their father, I hope they never knew. As Kathy had said, the Curry house showed no signs of having been ransacked or searched. The only thing of value that appeared out of place was a purse overturned in a chair. Next to it was a second purse, which was known to the family not to contain money as it had become a toy for the children. It was unopened. A checkbook, television, and stereo equipment were all undisturbed. Windows and doors of the home were closed. An overturned trash can blocked the kitchen's exterior door such that it would have been disturbed if someone had tried to enter or exit through that door. In the den, a multi-pane door that allowed access to the rear exterior of the house had a pane of glass that had been broken, but it had been broken from the inside. So this is what we referenced in the beginning, right? I mean, when the initial officers came to the scene, there was broken glass and they thought somebody might have broken in. That's exactly what they were referencing. The door was locked by a deadbolt and a lock on the handle, and glass situated against the door indicated that the door had not been opened since the glass was broken. The thermostat inside the house was turned to the highest setting, and the accompanying thermometer registered 90 degrees. The outside temperature that day was in the high 80s. So in other words, the thermostat was specifically put on high rather than the house being closed up and turning itself into an oven. Right. Like, remember when you were in high school and used to go to parties and you turned the thermostat <laughs> up in people's houses? <laughs> because you thought you were so funny. So funny. Exactly. That's what it sounds like they did. On the day of the crimes, Michael Curry told investigating police officers that he left work at 9.40 a.m. to purchase a fan for the hospital. He first went to Sears. Then he watched some nearby construction. Like... What? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I Construction don't know. workers? Was he trying to fill time? I have no idea. Met then, then, then he Exactly. Then he went to one, Montgomery Ward. These these are all like total throwback stores, by the way. Montgomery Ward, we actually mentioned in our very first episode. We did. So he did not purchase a fan at either store. He actually went and bought a fan at Kmart, which was a six-inch oscillating fan that's like a personal fan i was just gonna say so he made it like he was like oh i'm the big man on campus i gotta go buy a, f a fan for work and it's like no I, I gotta keep myself cool he testified that he was purchasing a fan for the hospital yeah so anyway he buys a six inch oscillating fan at kmart and the receipt time was 12 55 p.m according to testimony when curry bought the fan he was drenched in sweat and the cashier found it odd because the store was usually cold. Curry returned to work around 1.10 to 1.15. And then after that, he went home. He went home from work that night and found his family dead. Police records indicated that Curry gave several versions of what happened at the house after he arrived home from work. He said he left work about 5.15 that day and said he ordinarily entered the house through the kitchen door but he came through the front door that night 
because he saw a flyer on the front door. At one point, Curry said he saw Anne's purse and dumped it out, but did not explain why. At another point, he stated that he came in and sat down. He also stated that he knelt next to Erica's body in the kitchen, but the blood on the floor next to her was totally undisturbed, and lab tests showed no blood on his clothing. Curry further told police that when he went to call the police from his neighbor's residence, so this is the people across the street, he left through the side kitchen door. When asked how, given that the trash can blocked it, he changed his tune and said, oh, no, 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 I went through the front door. When asked if anything troubling had recently occurred, Curry mentioned only that Anne had received an obscene phone call. He did not answer their questions when asked about marital problems, but he did admit to financial difficulties. He also told the police that he had no problems with anyone at work or otherwise in his life that might have led to these crimes. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy died before trial, but his conclusion as to the time of death was between 2.30 and 3 p.m. At trial, a different medical examiner opined there could be no accurate estimate as to the time of death because of the high temperature in the house and Anne's pregnancy, factors which could have skewed body temperature. And body temperature is always important in estimating the time of death. Now, I found this really interesting because the original medical examiner put the the death at 2.30 to 3.30, which absolutely... 100% would have cleared Michael Curry because he had a co-worker saying they were walking the grounds together at 1.30 and he seemed fine. So they do a coroner's inquest and they find nothing. And here we are 26 plus years later going, wait, 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 wait. The original medical examiner was wrong because of the heat and the temperature and blah, 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 blah. But it also, it's like, it's interesting how when a medical examiner dies, his findings are called into question decades later. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't calling it into question, but Uh it's also Uh possible. It's not personal, Kath. (laughs) It feels like it is. (laughs) But it is also possible that, you know, as you said, it's been decades later. Are there new ways of determining body temperature or are the older practices not used anymore because the results back then weren't that accurate? Right. I I hear what you're saying. And I just count it. (laughs) No, I just I just think it's interesting because the DA's position is an elected position and it was her first year in and she was trying to make a name for herself. But I mean, what we don't know. I'm just engaging in conjecture. And frankly, there's a lot of room for conjecture because there was not a lot of information on this well, case. And there wasn't anything that directly tied him to it either. Exactly. So after examining the original autopsy records and the fact that the temperature in the house was known only to be in excess of 90 degrees. In other words, they knew it was in excess of 90, but they didn't say whether it capped out at 120 or what. The medical examiner testifying at trial estimated that Anne died sometime during the morning or afternoon hours. So again, a very nonspecific time. And a very large window. For sure. At trial, Bernice Johnson, Anne's mother, testified that Anne and the children came to her house in the morning of the murders and that Anne and Erica left to go shopping. While they were gone, she fed Ryan during a television show that was on from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. Anne and Erica returned, and the three left 10 minutes later. Mrs. Johnson was not sure of the time they left. 
Although she had initially told police officers it was about 12.30 p.m., she later told police officers it might have been as early as 12.15. Which is so interesting, Kathy, because obviously this woman's daughter and grandchildren were brutally murdered, but her recollection was fresh at the time. Right. And here we are 20 plus years later, and she's saying, oh, it could have been kicked back 15 minutes. Right. Which would have made a huge difference. Huge difference in this timeline. Travel time from the Johnson house to the Curry residence was seven minutes. Which means if her original estimate of 1230 was accurate, she would have been home at approximately 1237. Now, her husband's receipt at Kmart said, what, 1255? Right. So we're talking a really narrow window. We don't know how far the Kmart was from the Curry home, but let's assume he would have had only a matter of minutes. Right. But if she backs it up 15 minutes, that's, again, significant. Right. Mrs. Johnson also testified that she asked Curry after the funeral whether he killed the family or knew who had, and he did not answer her. Nine days after the trial began, the jury deliberated over eight hours before returning a verdict of guilty on all counts. Jurors said that with only circumstantial evidence to consider, the jurors relied heavily on the timeline of events presented at trial and concluded that Michael Curry had the time and motive to murder his family in 1985. And again, Kath, this brings up your point. Those 15 minutes make all the difference. So talk, talk to me about motive. I mean, he admitted to the police in the beginning that he was having financial difficulties. Correct. But, okay. He had not admitted to the affairs. Right. And now nothing was in the Court of Appeal opinion, but... I had read in some of the newspapers, but nothing was substantiated. Actually, I read it in one newspaper Okay, that he had had several girlfriends and one of them had said that he told her that he could not afford to divorce his wife. So as far as the other girlfriends, do we know when that came out? It was during the course of his marriage. I see. When I was thinking about motive in this case, I just didn't read a lot. Right. It was all hypothetical. Judge John Allen had told jurors that Curry's decision not to testify in his own defense should not be used against him. But according to interviews with two jurors, Curry's silence and the questions that were left unanswered were discussed during deliberations. Defense attorney Bob Watkins maintained that the prosecution had no evidence that connected Curry to the crime, either circumstantial or direct. However, the jury's foreman, David Lennon, said after the trial that when the jury looked at everything that had been presented, the jurors placed a heavy emphasis on the lack of any other suspects. There was no one else with the means and motive to kill the family. Jurors had seen close-up views of the crime scene photos, showing Ann Curry nearly decapitated, four-year-old Erica in a thick pool of blood, and 20-month-old Ryan with a head wound that split his ear. Oh. Okay, that's not the worst part. Ryan had such a tight grip on the shag carpeting that he was laying on that police had to pry his fist open. 20 months old. That's heartbreaking. Absolutely. Lennon, the jury foreman, said that Anne, Erica, and Ryan never got a say, and that's what the jury was trying to do. Judge John Allen sentenced 54-year-old Michael Curry to three consecutive life sentences. He won't be eligible for parole until he has served 30 years behind bars. Michael Curry appealed his conviction in 2012. In an article for the Ledger Inquirer, journalist Jim Mustian wrote that the Georgia Supreme Court found no grounds 
to contradict the jury. On appeal, Curry had claimed the circumstantial evidence that the DA presented was not sufficient to prove his guilt. The state's high court unanimously disagreed, basically saying, hey, look, the jury found evidence that authorized them to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Courts of appeal and Supreme Courts do not want to take on the role as fact finder. They mostly say, was there sufficient evidence for the jury to find the way they did? And they do that in deference to the jury and deference to the trial courts, knowing that they weren't there. Right. And in deference to the process that was set in motion. They don't want to Monday morning quarterback everything. And so there are so many nuances in a trial, body language, tone, all of those things that they don't get to be privy to. So they go, hey, is there sufficient evidence for the jurors to have reached the verdict they did? And here they said yes. The Court of Appeal made specific note of the district attorney's position. D.A. Slater told the jurors that there were no other reasonable scenarios that pointed to somebody else committing the murders. And frankly, the defense does not have to do that. They customarily do, but they don't have to. And the D.A. also pointed out that he was an unfaithful husband and they had a lot of financial struggles. Exactly. So there is a motive there. For sure. And the Court of Appeal pointed that out. They also pointed out that The defense attorney said, hey, look, this time frame is impossible. Curry could not have been the killer. However, the prosecutor pointed out that Curry could not account for his whereabouts the whole time he was away from work. And this was three and a half hours. Correct. And Kathy, it's important to remind everybody, I mean, it's kind of self-evident, there weren't video cameras. Right. Like they didn't have ring doorbells. They didn't have, you know, so if he says he's watching a construction site. Which is a weird defense. I agree. It doesn't mean it's not true. Right. It's just weird. Yeah. Like there was no video and there was no video in the stores that I'm aware of. And no street cameras. Right. So basically the defendant has to prove his case, a receipt stamped 1255 He says he returned to work from 110. There was no contradictory evidence. And then he has a co-worker saying, yeah, he was there at 130 and we walked the grounds together. And he didn't look upset, which you would think somebody would be if they had killed their entire family. You're exactly right. Curry's appeal also claimed prosecutors improperly commented on his right to remain silent. But what's interesting about that is we hear this in all the cases we've done. And this is episode 22. This has come up in at least Half of them. Totally. I agree 100%. A police investigator had testified that Curry had no response to several questions about the crime during a police interview. Curry's defense cited a state Supreme Court precedent that prohibits the prosecution from commenting on the defendant's silence prior to arrest or his failure to come forward voluntarily. You know what bothers me about that, Kath? I mean, other than the Fifth Amendment implication supposedly in regular police work, when somebody comes up with like, if they go, Hey, you know, who murdered your wife or whatever. And, and you're like, Oh, it could have been a B C or D. Supposedly when you come up with answers, they're far more suspicious. It's like you've planned it. But the Supreme court found that there was no reversible error. Noting Curry's defense did not object at the trial and therefore had failed to preserve a challenge for his appeal. Ouch. Right. Well, in their opinion, they stated, in any event, the investigator's testimony concerned Curry's silence in response to questions after Curry had been advised of his Miranda rights and had waived his right to remain silent. That's a big thing. So if he waives his right to remain silent and he's like, blah, 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 and they ask him a question, all of a sudden he's like, hmm, it's admissible. Well, and it stands out. Yes. 
He also did not invoke his right to remain silent at all during this interview. Which he could have at any time. You can waive your right and then invoke your right. The court also noted the defense's failure to object to Mrs. Johnson's testimony. Remember, she's Anne's mom, and she had testified that she had asked Curry after the funeral whether he killed his family or knew who had, and that Curry never responded to her. The court held that Curry made no objection to Mrs. Johnson's testimony or the question that prompted it, and any challenge to it had not been preserved for appellate review. Curry's defense contended his due process rights had also been violated by the lengthy delay between the crimes and the indictment, but the Supreme Court noted that there is no applicable statute of limitation for murder. The opinion further upset Curry's defense team, which had always maintained that District Attorney Slater failed to prove the circumstantial case. Defense attorney Bob Watkins said that it put a sour taste in his mouth and accused the court of glossing over his arguments. He further stated that he was really disappointed that the court wouldn't look at the case closely, but just superficially affirmed it without really doing any scholarly analysis. Watkins said Curry had additional judicial remedies to pursue, but that those avenues would be explored by separate appellate counsel. Basically, he's like, I did. Yeah, exactly. Peace out, people. I did my best. Asked in a telephone interview whether he believed his client was innocent, Watkins said, My opinion makes no difference whatsoever, but I think that with the evidence that was put up, there's no proof he did anything. It's all just supposition. Family members of the victims, having waited a generation for justice, breathed a collective sigh of relief that Curry's conviction cleared an important hurdle, meaning the appellate court said, No, 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 no. The conviction stands. And Curry's mother, Bernice Johnson, called the Supreme Court's ruling an answer to prayers and said that she was relieved that the Court of Appeal unanimously upheld the guilty verdict of Michael Curry. Michael Curry is currently in prison at Ware State Prison in Waycross, Georgia. He will not be eligible for parole until 2041 when he is 84 years old. If you liked us, But only if you liked us. Recommend us to a friend and rate us where you get your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Boom goes the dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) You're so lame. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.